0: technically weird about it, but when the apostles came to Jesus and said, uh, teach us how to pray, and then we have that classic prayer, which is really an outline to a prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was literally the apostles, as it says in the original language, teach us how to be praying. So they were saying how to teach us how to be men of prayer. So they are given that outline um, to use uh, daily in their prayer life. And so we call that the Lord's Prayer. But realistically, it's the Apostles' Prayer. I mean, there's nothing wrong with calling it the Lord's Prayer. Again, I'm not trying to be legalistic. But here, John 17, this is literally the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus Christ's. High priestly prayer. And man, it's really worthy of attention. There's a lot of stuff here. And, and it's actually so potent in the way that Jesus expresses himself here that uh, you know a lot of it doesn't need to be expounded upon. And it's the sort of thing that is really beneficial to just read it over and over and let your heart expand on what it is that Jesus is saying here. He has a lot to express about his ministry and the apostles and and even us um, who will come to believe later through the the words of the apostles. So there's a lot to examine here in John 17 as the prayer of the Lord. So verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, father the hour has come now uh, within that the idea that he knew uh what hour was coming upon him he you know the hour of betrayal the hour of his death didn't come upon him as a surprise you know there are those who so misunderstand jesus you know i i mean i remember i didn't watch uh Jesus Christ superstar. Until I was in my twenties, I've been raised in Christianity. And you know, uh, uh, a friend from another denomination was all excited. Oh, you know, we got to watch that. He, he, knowing I was a believer, brought it to me, and I was offended by that movie. I mean, just the you know theme song they keep singing about you know Jesus Christ superstar. Who are you? What do you think you are? And they present Jesus throughout. The play, the movie, as not knowing you know who he is, what his mission is, when his hour is going to come he's he's like sort of learning everything as he goes along. There's a lot of other problems with it, but you know the, the point that you see from his youth, Jesus knows who he is, I mean, you know he's in the temple debating the priest, you know he's missing for three days, you know, Joseph and Mary finally find him and marry rightfully so in an earthly sense is upset you know, didn't you know you'd make us distraught is essentially what she's saying and you know how could you have done this to us And he says you know woman didn't you know that I'd be about my father's business indicating while I appreciate Joseph and have utter respect for him he's not my father God is my father and I'm here to do the business that I'm currently doing which is teaching these high you know these priests in the temple uh the things they need to know uh regarding god so now when he says you know his hour has come jesus knew you know he over and over again is saying you know my hour's not yet come my hour's not yet come you know don't tell anyone what i've done for you because my hour has not yet come his hour, his hour has now come now regarding future hour right uh, we know we're all longing for the day where he'll appear and take the church and then the finality of all things and when the new creation will begin. We want to know all that stuff. And the apostles were kind enough to ask him you know, specifically, so tell us when is that going to happen? And he said in Matthew 24 at verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. There are certain things within God's grasp alone, and uh, I think that's also important to know because you have false teachers kicking around who, you know, are setting dates and telling people when specific things are going to happen and leading people astray. You know, the things that the Scripture has left obscured that we are told are not knowable, leave them alone. It's amazing to me. You know, the, the scripture so clearly says you can't know certain things, and then you turn around and there's a guy who's saying, well, I figured that." It it's ridiculous. So, 17.1 continues, Jesus saying, glorify your son. Now that the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Uh, within that is another sound Christian doctrine. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. Jesus will glorify the Father. There is a um, fairly consistent selflessness uh, to God. You know, there's there's not that whole thing of uh, what a lot of the church does, where it it tries to glorify their church, their denom- know, let's put it this way. We we try to glorify our church, our denomination, you know, and then our view. Of Jesus our view of the Holy Spirit if we're you know, the closer we are to accurate in Following the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is going to cause us to glorify Jesus and uh, Jesus is in turn going to teach us through the word and glorify the Father You know that ever pointing forward uh, to who the Father is as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And of course then all of our Calvinistic and Armenian brothers begin to squabble at that point. You know, who has God been given? Which ones belong to Jesus Christ? Which ones don't? Who's elected and who is not? Well, it all goes back to John 3.16. And we all know that. You know, whomsoever would believe in him would not perish would have everlasting life. And so whoever wants it can accept it and experience that eternal life. You know, Peter told us that he paid for the sins of the false teachers. Well, we know from the scripture that the false teachers are going to hell and then going to be cast into outer darkness. So the debt has been paid. They just never cash the check. You know, uh, Jesus Christ has given the opportunity for everyone to be saved. And uh, the ones that are, they are the ones that have been given to him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Wow, that's eternal life. That's salvation. It's not emptying your mind and body and soul of every thought and uh, presence until you become at one with the universe. You know that's the you know Hindu or Buddhist approach. You guys know that whole old Hindu joke. Hindu go, guru goes to the hot dog vendor in New York City and says, "Make me one with everything." I guess, you know, anyway, yeah, lame. I know. I just it's not easy being cheesy. So, uh, verse four. I have glorified you on the earth. I have. Finish the work which you have given me to do, and now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was two part uh glory i mean it's it's one glory, but there's two sort of segments to it for us to understand the first of which is Jesus empties himself. Of all of his authority, it allows himself to be betrayed and then beaten and scourged and then crucified. That's actually a portion of the glory. It, the meekness, the humility, the emptying of himself that is set as an example for us. right? Over and over again we hear that. right? You want to be glorified, you want to be lifted up, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Become everyone's servant. Become the lowest. Dive for the bottom and you will be lifted up. You know, as far as being lifted up, Jesus lifting up began in this section of his glorification with being lifted up on the cross. You know, I, we're so careful. Um, and, and I guess in a right way. But, um, you know, the, the cross was so humiliating. You know, I mean, you know, we've gotten used to seeing him there uh, with uh, at least some kind of covering. When people were crucified, they were crucified naked, laid out for the whole world to see, their flesh and body destroyed. I don't know if you've ever had, you know, a massive injury, but when you sustain you know the deepest of injuries as your body goes into shock or it nears shock i mean you begin to shake and you begin to tremble and you know you're you're not in a dignified state of being as you're as you're going through that so you know Jesus Christ you know as far as being glorified was going through this human torture then the real glory that we understand you know, like Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, the resurrection and his glorified state and, you know, just appearing in rooms and speaking to uh, his followers. So, you know, that that glory certainly did come. And, uh, you know, in the days following as he ministered to the body of Christ for 40 days and then Ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And then we begin to hear of those who see his glory, right? As they're stoning Stephen and he is entering the kingdom, he declares, Look, I see heaven open, and Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. And, you know, he begins to have that radiant glory, uh, perhaps similar uh, to Moses. Who came down off the mount and his face shone? It, it says there in Acts as they're stoning Stephen to death that his face shone like an angel. As they that that's a strange concept to me that he begins to radiate the glory of God. So they kill him. You know, it's it's such a strange thing. So it is with Jesus as he is being glorified. It's it's partly in this process of death and uh, you know how he is. You know, finish this work and and manifest him and now being glorified. Uh, You know, he's finished the work that was to be done. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished your work, which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You know, and the next time we hear John speaking uh, about the glory, uh, he's seeing Jesus in the vision of revelation you know as he's there on the island of patmos and hears the voice and turns around and there's jesus and his glorified saint verse 6 i have manifest your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world they were yours you gave them to me and they kept your word he of course clarifies this as not pertaining to uh, judas entirely Uh, judas did act as a minister jesus did send him out with the 72 and he was you know performing jesus ministries but um you know the uh, word that they went out and declared the name they declared was jesus name it was certainly jehovah and the jehovah's witnesses want to insist that that you know uh, we're later going to hear salvation is in god's name well jesus name is jehovah's salvation You know, Yeshua, so the glorification of uh, God the Father's name is in Jesus' name. So, you know, that's what he's referring to is the glorification of God that took place in his life, in his own ministry. They've kept your word. Verse 7, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. That is how they knew; they received His word. There's, you know, other examples which I'll talk about in just a second. But you know, the, for the apostles, the knowledge came from, you know, believing what Jesus had said and done in their midst. You know, for me, uh, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Remember, you know, as he's making that declaration, and he asks them, uh, you know, are you offended by me? Do you want to leave also? And they say, where would we go? You have the words of life, you know, what we've experienced and been taught comes from you. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours and of course you know a supportive verse Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says therefore he also he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them this continuous prayer that Jesus is and Jesus offers for us. You know, he is constantly uh, pleading on our behalf. Yeah, that is a very comforting thought that the struggles we're in, the difficulties that we face, the challenges, you know, the darkness of our hearts at time, Jesus is there continuously praying for us, interceding, getting between us and the problems you know getting between us and the judgment that would come he is interceding on our behalf you know not when he says i don't pray for the world you know it, the idea is there's a world that's rebelling against him and you know he is he is praying you know the the idea of desiring their repentance right god is patient not willing that any would perish but that all would come to the knowledge of him. He wants the world to be saved through him. So in that, he's interceding for the world. But it isn't this supportive prayer. Here he is pleading the Father for them, and he's going to specifically ask, you know, that the Lord would sustain, care for them, protect them in the world that's going to hate them. You know, the Lord isn't doing that for the world that has rejected him. You know, Jesus Christ is not out there interceding on their behalf the way he is for believers. You know, you know that idea, people say, you know, God, you know, he hears everybody's prayers. He just, he's listening. There's a whole bunch of people that he's listening for their prayer of repentance. You know, God isn't out there granting the wishes like a genie to every person that just calls out to him. You know, when he's saying, you know, I will give you whatever you ask in my name, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that is for those who are being obedient to Him, those who are following Him, those who have submitted their lives to Him. Which is the contrast that He's putting forward here. You know, I do not pray for the world. I pray for the apostles. He's, he's interceding for the whole world. He He died to save the whole world, but uh, you know His intercessory prayer, you know, focused on the life of the believer. 17.10, and all are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. There's no difference between uh, those that belong to God the Father and those that belong to God the Son. And you say, well, of course there isn't. Well, there are people like John Hagee uh, within Christianity that are that literally, and it's strange because John Hagee has massive ministries to the Jewish people and to the the nation of Israel, and yet he'll say, don't evangelize Jewish people because they have a separate salvation than us. Their salvation comes through Abraham. Ours came through Jesus Christ. That's false. That's a false teaching. I I wouldn't necessarily say John Hagee is a false teacher. I mean, that, I guess, would qualify him to a certain degree but that's a messed up doctrine. You know, we have one source of salvation, be, you know, a Jew or Gentile. This is the whole Jerusalem council. And the conclusion at the end, I love the way uh, that, you know, James makes that statement about, look, if we continue in the faith, we can get saved just like the Gentiles are. You know, the Jews. Indicating if we don't continue in the faith the way the Gentiles are, we will not be saved it, it is one source of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ so you know if you belong to Jesus then you belong to the Father if you belong to the Father then you belong to Jesus you know the uh, you know there are many false teachers and false teachings that you know have different veins of salvation for you know people that are associated with you know, the Jews versus Christians, all of that is false. There's one salvation for anyone that comes to the Lord, male or female, Jew or Gentile. Christ doesn't see any of those differences. 17.11, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may Be one as we are one. Now, um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, the unity of Christ and the unity in Christ. And the closer that you get to being involved in some of the cults, uh, a lot of what they say starts to sound like uh, we should all be uniform in our teaching. We should all be uniform and our behavior, uniform in our belief system. The Scripture never calls for uniformity, never. It calls for unity, but it declares there are going to be differences, specifically in this discussion that I just brought up about the Jews versus the Gentiles. You know, right away the church is saying the Jews are going to continue to worship in the way that the Jews do. And they'll have the Sabbath and they'll have certain observations that they do. None of that provides them with any greater sense of salvation than the Gentiles. The Gentiles are going to have their methods of worship, their days of worship. And you get to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, and Paul is saying, let no man judge you in food or drink, Sabbaths, new, new moons, holy days. And we hear him also saying, you know, one man considers one day more holy than another. Another considers all days the same. So so nowhere is the scripture saying that there should be an absolute uniformity to all of our belief system, conduct, or worship, right? We have those core principles that we need to be united over. You know, I would say that uh, the Apostles' Creed is, you know, one of the best examples of, you know, what do we believe? And you go through, you know, the Word of God and and the virgin birth and the Holy Scriptures and, you know, one church. Right, you go through, okay, those are core principles that tell us that we are united in our beliefs, but there's not going to be a uniformity. I mean, you know, if we start trying to create that, then we could show up here next week and decide— well, we've all gotta, you know, dress like our African Christian brothers and we'll have all kinds of wild outfits, you know, and you know, be wearing a lot of polyester or something. I don't know. I'm just I'm making it up. But I'm I mean uniformity is not what the Lord is calling us to. You know, and, and here Jesus is, is not, you know, saying anything of that nature either. You know, I've been mean, kept through your name you have given me that they may be One as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. None of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Um, You know, he is lost referring to Judas, the son of wastefulness or the son of loss and waste, uh, because uh, that was uh, who he was from the beginning. He, he didn't ever belong to Christ. And John clarifies that frame of mind later in first John chapter two, verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Now, so that's, specifically speaking of false teachers that depart from the faith, but it has the greater general overview of anyone who forsakes the faith. You know, you say, well, they were with us so long, and they professed so strongly that they were a child of God. And look at the fruitfulness of their lives. Look at this group of people over here that accepted Christ because of that person's ministry, that's miraculous, that you know people might come to know the Lord through a person who preached Jesus Christ, who never had faith themselves. Paul talks about how there are all kinds of different motivations for people to perform ministry. Some people do it straight up out of jealousy. They see somebody else being successful in life. They look on and say, I want to do that same thing. It doesn't have anything to do with a call in their life. It doesn't have anything to do with the Lord, you know, ministering to them. They are they are preaching out of jealousy. It's a strange thing, a human behavior. Judas was lost because he never was found. He was never part of the whole body. You know, I mean, if Jesus can say of Judas, what if he was a devil? I, that's about as serious as it gets right there. Being in the body of Christ and being labeled by the Lord himself as being the devil. 1713. But now I come to you. and These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He, he spoke these things while he was in the world so that they could hear them. So they didn't have to... Discover them in prayer later, which, you know, leaves that sort of question as to whether they're hearing from the Lord. When Jesus speaks it to them outright, uh, face to face, then it removes all doubt. We get to read it here ourselves, and it gives us that assurance also that our joy can be fulfilled. That, you know, these things were in Jesus' heart they were his thinking, uh, they were his passion, and he expressed them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I, uh, interestingly enough, you know, when you consider the scripture talking about predestination and being, you know, predestined before the foundations of the world. That's that's a remarkable thought that before the world began, we were predestined to be believers and even sit here uh, this evening and had a conversation with uh, a sister a few years ago who was in this church hearing a message on predestination. And I quoted this uh, in that uh, sermon, you know, that... Uh, that idea that the world would have hated them because they were not of this world. And she realized that uh, she gave her life to Christ in uh, a family that is completely godless at at a young age. And her family hated and despised and abused her all growing up. Other siblings... Mom and dad, um, it's been confirmed, she is their, you know, real uh, paternal child. It's not, she wasn't adopted uh, from her youth. There was a focus and a hatred upon her by the family, by the parents, physically abused, mentally abused, just growing up with a family that hated her. And she came to understand here, sitting in, you know, this church, well, if I was predestined to be a child of God, then I, in fact, was a child of God the moment that I was born into that family. And that family has never been a child of God. None of them. They all hate God, hate Christianity, hate the faith, hate me. She had, you know, a different understanding of, you know, this idea of being from, uh, you know, a wicked family versus a godly family, and how their hatred was focused on her because something in them testified of Christ that was in her before she even completely surrendered her life to him. Just an interesting thought, you know, this idea of I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. You know, the fa- that family hated her because she's not of that family. It a strange concept, administered to her. Uh, and hear me, not just in sort of being a, in a, sh- a strange understanding, administered to her to help her love those people. That that from the beginning we were of a different family. You know, she grew up going, why, why do they hate me? Why do they treat me like this? Why have they done all these horrible things to me? And you know, here she is as an adult who has children and grandchildren of her own now is going, well, that actually makes sense. I was a child of God from the moment I was born into that family, and they are all a godless family. So, of course, they would hate me. Um, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So, in the world, but not of it. They are not of the world, just I am not of the world sanctify them by your truth your word is truth as i as you sent me into the world i also have sent them into the world and for their sakes i sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth now this issue of sanctification here's jesus praying that they would be sanctified and we think of that idea of, you know, uh, being cleansed, you know, the process of, of growth and maturity and cleansing. Lord, sanctify them. You know, we hear over and over again, especially with Moses, as you know, Moses would say to the, the nation of Israel, now sanctify yourself this day. You know, put away the sinful things, cleanse your hands, you know, dedicate yourself to the Lord, so so that idea of sanctification does have the idea of a cleansing process, uh, but Paul puts it in a slightly different light in First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven. You might want to turn there with me. Put your bookmark in uh, John chapter seventeen and look at First Corinthians chapter six, beginning at verse nine. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then I love this statement. And such were some of you, past tense. But you were washed, past tense. You were sanctified, past tense. You were justified, right? We say, just as if I'd never sinned. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God we have already been justified and sanctified and even glorified you know certainly you know there is a growing and a maturing process that takes place you know over our lives but we have positionally been sanctified in Jesus Christ already already been justified by Jesus Christ's work and everything the glorification sure it's going to take place when the world finally sees, maybe even when we finally see, right? Maybe we're walking through life, uh, you know, depressed and struggling and having a lot of, you know, uh, difficulties along the way. But in the end, we've already been glorified with Christ. So this, this idea, you know, of Jesus saying, you know, for their, for their sake, I sanctify myself. What sanctification does Jesus have to do? You know, he has dedicated himself to the work of the Lord, right? There in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he is saying, you know, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He is embracing. He's sanctifying himself in obedience. The scripture actually tells us that Jesus had to learn obedience. That's, that's. I mean, if I was saying that about Jesus, I mean, you might be right in crying, you know, blasphemy. But the scripture declares that Jesus learned obedience. And, and my personal feeling on that is the garden of Gethsemane, where he said, I don't want to do this. And yet, I will submit myself to your will. You know, never before had there been any conflict between Jesus' will and God the Father's will. And so, that process of walking manually through uh, obeying the Lord, he sanctified himself from any sin that might take place and thereby, positionally, sanctified us. That as we trust in him, Otherwise, you guys, if we're saying there's some cleansing process that I can do or put myself through, then we are saying that Christ's finished work at the cross was not enough. That I'm being sanctified, and eventually I'll be sanctified to the place of completion. Even if, you know, we're quoting Philippians 1.6 at that point and saying, you know, the Lord will be faithful to complete the work that he began in us. So at that point, then I'll be uh, you know acceptable to God the thing that makes us acceptable is grace all along the way it, it isn't that uh, oh boy you know he's cleaned himself up or you know she's finally been cleansed enough by the lord to be acceptable to god it's a matter of christ's redemptive work sanctified us so 17 verse 20 says i do not pray For these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's, you know, multifaceted all the way to today. We can look at specific two specific moments that historically were massive regarding this. Pentecost, Peter preaches, 3,000 come to the Lord. Acts chapter 10, house of Cornelius preached to the Gentiles. Holy Spirit falls upon them, they receive salvation. That covers the whole gamut. Everybody is encompassed within those two moments of salvation and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But it does extend all the way down to us this evening as we sit here, believing through their words as we're studying the words of John, the things that he recorded regarding Jesus. 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. When they see that continual work happening in us, when they see Christ freeing us from our sinfulness and you know giving us a love for one another that can only come from Jesus Christ. That's an evidence that we are in Christ. And the glory which you have Which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them, and you have loved them. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. What a wonderful prayer of Jesus. It's my desire that these people be with me, you know. I just uh, went away to do relief work right after Hurricane uh, Katrina and I came home and my wife had this little tiny black and white cat that she had gone and found and you know the pleading look on her face was can this cat belong to our family now you know and Pippin has been with us all these years and he's definitely a member of our household it's a uh, a little bit like that maybe i'm stretching it but you know you bring home a couple million strays from planet earth and say to your father can i keep them you know you just get to bring home a whole bunch of these knuckleheads that uh, you know don't have any other love you know given to them from the world We, we are beloved of christ and he brings us to his father's attention and says i want to keep them i want them to be with me as i was you know destined to be you know before the foundations of the world i want them to be at my side such a gracious plea on our behalf 1725, O oh righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. He's pleading our case at this point. And of course, it's both a an, uh, confirmation and a condemnation. When we read John chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 1, there was that n- a man who of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know, the statement, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. For those that reject him, it's a condemnation. For those that embrace him, it's a commendation that we believe the works that Jesus has done, the words that he has preached, and Jesus pleads on our behalf and makes us his own. To close 1726, I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. He came to us and he declared to us the unconditional love of God. For all of man's efforts through religion to strain through his practices and his rituals to try and reach God, to know and understand God, to accomplish the presence of God, none of that was possible. God reached down having become a man and touched humanity. And in touching humanity, there are those who have loved him, embraced him. That same unconditional love that he reached us with, we now reach back to him. And I do mean the unconditional love because the world is cruel. The world is unkind. You know, the length of our days can cause us to strain and doubt and wonder And yet we continue to reach out to the one that is reaching to us. It is that duplicity of his saying, whosoever and our saying to him, make me yours. That's the relationship we have. That's the wonder of this high priestly prayer that is given to us by Jesus. So quite a, Quite a commendation that comes from the Lord. We'll pick up at 18 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for your word. The evidence of your great love recorded here. You could have set the bar so high. You could have said anything. That if we would accomplish certain superhuman tasks, then you would accept us. Rather than that, you came in in humility, meekness, and love. You just extended your accepting hand. And if we would just reach back and not reject you, just accept you, then you make us yours. That's such a wonderful picture. Lord, help us to ever do that, to constantly be people that will reach out to you. Bless us, keep us, protect us as you prayed in this prayer. Though we be in the world, we're not of the world, and we are, in fact, despised by the world. Protect us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Stay in fellowship as long as you want to.